You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The behavior part of reading about poison dart frogs and learning they're actually considered very intelligent mm-hmm. for, um, for an amphibian what can they teach us? And I, here I am in my 30s, you know, PhD, <laughs> thinking I know all about animals, and I pick up this toad and it peed all over me. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> my three-year-old son even knows that, Chris. <laughs> yes, so. Many species are in crisis and need your help. They estimate close to 130 have gone extinct already. 130? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, 130. Oh my word. And 400 are, are endangered or reaching extinction. If you go to Central America... Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. So welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Angie. And so Angie, welcome. And today we're going to talk about poison dart frogs, something totally new. Yes, I learned a lot. I knew a little bit about frogs going into this as I used to take care of them at the zoo. But learning about poison dart frogs specifically has been really fun. No, it has. And it's, you know, I think it's one of the things that's exciting for us is that we get to build upon our own knowledge. That yes. We, you know, we, we have some knowledge on some of these species, but each week you and I are really jumping into scientific literature and everything we can find about this to talk about. Yeah, and I... Once again, just like science, I, the more answers I find, the more questions I have. Right, Especially right. about, for me, their behavior or their right. reproductive life cycle. Right, right. And I know we're Very both, interesting. We're both animal physiologists, but we focus mainly on mammals, mammalian physiology. So jumping into amphibians. Yes, a little bit out new, of my comfort yes, zone. <laughs> yes, but it's, but it's pretty awesome. Like, I, I learned so much about these, this species this week. I think the first thing is, why amphibians, Right. Right. Like, why do we care about frogs? Why should we care about frogs? We should definitely care about frogs. Right. And I think, you know, I, I talked a little bit about this in the first episode where I'm talking about the Earth 6 mass extinction. And really amphibians is is the canary in the coal mine, right? You even mentioned that to me a couple of times this week, talking about species, frog species. Yeah, I think they represent what's going on with the environment, what's going on with the climate, because they're so sensitive. Right, yeah. And I think I think that's what scientists are picking up. Mm-hmm. And when they look at the biodiversity across all taxa, I guess, if you're looking at mammals and fish and crustaceans and reptiles, amphibians are the ones that are suffering the most. Yes, definitely most in decline. A lot of extinction going on and a lot of near-threatened or endangered species across. Or extinct. Or yeah. definitely or extinct. Or extinct. And that's just the species we know of. Right. Because there's thousands of amphibians we, we don't know of that we have yet to discover that we may never discover because they go extinct. Right now, the IUCN, who we've talked a little bit about before in, in previous episodes, they are estimating a little bit less than half, but almost half of the 6,000 amphibian species are endangered right now or threatened with extinction, which is scary. That's really scary. I mean, I know mammals, it's what, 20 something percent, you know, we're getting in that range where it's, it's a little scary for mammals, but amphibians where almost half of them are faced with extinction. Again, canary in the coal mine, this is scary. Right. And I think that we forget not that we forget about them, but they definitely don't get a, a lot of the glory uh, as the big 
megafauna or the big mammals. And, and that's a shame because, like you said, they're going extinct at a much faster rate. Right. And then, you know, talking about the tree of life, they're a major, major, you know, supporting branch of the tree of life. And if you cut that branch away, the tree's going to die. Right. Do we want more mosquitoes? I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, no. God, get rid of it. Especially here in Florida. They're really bad lately. So that kind of brings us to our, our species of focus this week, and that's the poison dart frogs, which are awesome. You know, they're beautiful, beautiful frogs. They just, anytime I've seen these they're flamboyant. Yes. I mean, they're just so pretty. They're just such a, a pretty, pretty animal. It's Mother Nature's work at, right. fi- at, at its finest. Right. And they, this is the the one frog that you look like, like somebody painted them. Mm-hmm. Like just all the vibrant colors that they have. Neon colors, right. different patterns. Right. And they're called, so that whole coloration and then toxicity, because they're poisonous, is called aposomatic, big word, and it's a new one in my vocabulary this week. I may have heard it before, but now I really know what aposomatic is. And that is basically saying that the coloration means don't come near me, I'm toxic, you're going to die. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a warning flag. Exactly, exactly. Which is weird, because then I think like, you know, yeah, there's berries in the wild that are colored, and well, we shouldn't eat them because they're poisonous. But then yet strawberries are red and beautiful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I love strawberries. But but to yeah. your uh, analogy, yeah. yeah, to your yeah. analogy, not all poison dart frogs are actually poisonous. That's true. It's more of a warning. Hey, if you eat me, you might die. Right. You know, you don't know. The interesting thing about the poison dart frogs, again, they're one of the species that are one of the canaries in the coal mine. Many of them are endangered. Some of them are probably extinct that we... we don't know about, but due to all of the pressures of habitat loss, climate change, the over-exploitation of rainforests that scientists have now said in the last 20 years, they are really suffering bad in, in Central and South America where these frogs are from. So there's a fungus that is actually deadly to amphibians that is just wiping out populations. Right. And the poison dart frogs are super susceptible. Right. That's what they're saying. So it's a big word. It's it's a fungus. Yeah, it's a fungus. <laughs> a, fun- a fungus among us. Yeah, it's a big one. So and 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 some scientists are saying because of climate change, things are you know warming up, so the fungus is able to proliferate and then wipe out some of these frogs. So so really it's kind of scary for them. And again, just kind of setting the base on why we care. Why we care about you know this particular little species. beautiful poison frogs. Right, right. So I'm going to show you two pictures. And I'm showing Angie a picture of kind of a red, black, uh, polka-dotted, or sorry, a green with black polka-dotted frog, and then this bright, bright red frog. And if I asked you, you were forced to eat one without cheating, <laughs> which one would you not want to eat? If What's your instinct? You're looking at them, you're like, okay, I got to eat one. It's either take the red pill or this green pill. Which one are you going to take? I would take the blue pill. The blue pill, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, I don't know. I probably would stay away from red. Right. Because red, red means one. like warning. Right. That's what I thought. Like, I, you know, if I had to lick one, I, I'd lick the green one, you know, because I'm like, okay, that one looks less dangerous than this one that, that's bright red. And according to the study it's this green one is more toxic more poisonous like kermit yeah like it is it it really is and i'll i'll put those in the show notes you know to to show the differences so looking at the scientific evidence of these frogs and and it's really 
it depends on the subspecies because some of them that have the more vibrant red color coloration you would think is the is the more toxic one and that's what a lot of scientists have have predicted and they've actually you know they have have done studies that have gone out and have actually found that that the brighter the color the more vibrant the color the more poisonous they are but then there's a couple conflicting studies that show you know these other ones that hide better that are that are less conspicuous that can blend in well sometimes are more poisonous than say the bright red one again that kind of gets back to what you were saying in the beginning with these frogs the the toxicity varies in the in the species you know in the over 250 species of, of poison dart frogs some of them aren't poisonous some of them are really toxic and poisonous that will kill you dead and then there's a bunch in between and the coloration doesn't necessarily always mean toxicity levels so it's best to stay away from all yes, of them. Yes, don't even lick one. Don't, even, don't lick any. Yeah, they are so Take cute. Take home though, message yeah. of the day, kids. Yeah. So they, you know, again, it, it, and, it, and, and that just kind of highlights what we don't know. Right. right? There's we a lot don't, we don't know. There's a lot we don't know. And these things aren't easy to study. No. You know, out in the, in really. Um, dense, dense forest. Forests, right. And they're small. You know, we'll get to that. So I think one of my first questions is why are they toxic? What gives them their, why are these poisonous frogs? And. Really, what it is is their diet. Right? That's the prevailing theory: is that they they're and we're going to get into the nutrition. You are what you eat. Yes, exactly. So they they are leaf littered. So they're down on the, the forest floor eating particular insects that gives them their toxicity. Now we don't know exactly how yet they produce the poisons, but they do know that they do come from the diet because when we bring them to captivity, they don't have. Any right. poison. Right. So, well, not those that are born in captivity do not produce any poison. Poison, right. Those that have maybe been wild caught and then brought into captivity, it's, they're not really sure how long, but they think it can take up to a couple of years for them to detoxify themselves right. as, as this toxin stays within their skin cells for a long time and they can actually accumulate a lot of it over time because they're not consistently releasing it. They only usually release it if they're under stress right. or, or feel they're in danger or feel they're endangered. Right. And so these, these toxins are alkaloid toxins, very, very toxic to, to us. Now, I think one thing that I was kind of interested in too, is the difference between a poisonous animal and a venomous animal. Yeah. These are right. concepts you don't think of until you're, until you really look deep into it. You right. don't, you don't, you may not know the difference, but right. I, I was, it made sense to me when I learned what the answer was. Right. Right. So the poisonous is, you really have to eat them or lick them or maybe even sometimes handle them because our skin sure. is an organ. Our skin absorbs things. And then that poison will get into your system and can end up killing you. Where venomous animals are ones that have some sort of delivery mechanism, which we typically think of venomous snakes yes. with the fangs. Especially here in Florida. You know, we got copperheads and all these things that, that can kill you <laughs> with their venom. There are other species, too, in the oceans and stuff that have spines or spikes. A that, delivery method. Right. They can deliver venom there. So these frogs are poisonous. They don't deliver venom or poison. You have to actually eat them or handle them in your Come mouth. Come in contact right, with them. Right. To, to get that, that poison. So a lot of this aposomatic is these frogs have adapted to warn predators to, to stay away. So mostly, mainly with these animals is birds. And so a lot of the research has looked at aposomatic and how birds see color. And I, I never really thought the, 
you know, animals. I don't know. Maybe it was just growing up, but we always thought like animals saw them black and white. Well, I don't, I mean, it might not be growing up. I think that that's what researchers really thought, but right. now they're able to do a lot better studies mm-hmm. and, and prove that animals, not only a lot of animals, not only do they see in some color, one or two variations, dichromatic color, but right. some see in similar to how broad we spectrum. See. Yeah. Broad, broad spectrum. spectrum. There was a study we actually did uh, last year in, in that class I teach, the uh, the research methods course that was looking at the Galapagos t- tortoises. I don't know if I've talked to you about this or not. If you had to predict, so when they were putting placing food with the tortoises and trying to get either color or shape to them to affiliate the food with so, or to associate the food with, which one do you think the tortoises would be more gravi- gravitate towards, a color preference or a shape preference? Because well, I work with tortoises yeah, okay. a lot. So They're some of my know. favorites. I don't, but my guess would be color. Yeah, it was. Okay. I thought yeah. it was shape. Like they thought, you they know, they would see love circles, berries, and grapes. Yeah, they <laughs> they can see. You know, that's what we assumed in this. It was a small study, but they actually looked at preferences of either a shape or a color, and they always gravitated towards their color. They're looking for those strawberries, right? Yeah. And I was like, you proved. I mean, I'm sure somebody already knew this, but you proved tortoises can see a color. Yeah. So it was a cool, it was a really cool little study that, that the students did, and I was really excited for the results. Uh, just just some quick quick facts, because, again, we don't know a lot about amphibians, you and I, and some other people probably don't. Frog evolution, how the heck these animals evolved, they have been around forever, forever. Are they like kind of hopping dinosaurs? Yeah. I mean, they cool. 300 million years, frogs okay. have evolved. Wow. They, through all the, the mass extinctions... There's some of these frogs have survived. So let's us humans not wipe them out. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. Yeah, that would be horrible. Jeez. One of the theories on frog evolution is having them exploding after the, the last fifth mass extinction, that they've been around, but it was really once the dinosaurs went away with T-Rex, that they really exploded their they population and, and the species variation came around. And there's really three lineages of frogs. They've done a lot of DNA testing to look at that. And, you know, obviously the poison dart frogs fall under one of those. So actually they discovered the poison dart frogs in 1787. And that was the first uh, species for them uh, to find them in, in the rainforest of South America. There, They estimate there's over 250 different species that we kind of know about now. And then who knows how many more there there are out there that we haven't found yet. Or there were. Right. Or there now. were. That's right. That, that's a good point, too, that, that could be extinct. So again, these animals are—they live all over South America, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, Peru, up through Central America. So pretty wide, huge territories that these animals are in. Are they always in forest, or are they found in grasslands, right. or in the mountains? Completely varies. They on the coast, uh, down in rivers, up in the highlands. Right, they're everywhere. They're they're all over. Very diverse. Right, they're not specific to one certain type of environment, so they're all over the place in in Central and South America. So yeah, it's a good question. It's a really good question. And again, we talked about their toxicity. Some of them are very toxic versus others that aren't. So Angie, these these frogs are really cool because they're diurnal. Yeah, I was reading that. And I was really fascinated because I always take my boys for walks here in the evening or nighttime here in Central Florida. And we love listening to the chorus, the beautiful music that the, our local frogs right, right. make, and a few invasive species. That's a different subject yeah, the for a different day. Frog, right? Yeah, a different subject for a different day. But we love identifying them through their calls, and this is always at nighttime. But these poison dart frogs are singing their songs and doing their dance and 
hunting and whatnot during the day. Right, right. Yeah, you would think most amphibians or frogs are, are nighttime, but these ones actually, yeah, they're active during the day. And then, like us, they're sleeping at night. <laughs> so really cool little uh, behavior uh, I'm sure you're going to talk about. Now, what's really cool about you know, doing digging into some of the research about their poison, these lipophilic alkaloids. So we know lipo, mm-hmm. for us, for us geeky scientists, is, is fat. Right. As, well, most people can relate to this because uh, lipophilic means fat-loving. Yes. Yeah, so. Who doesn't love a donut? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So these poisons like fat, I guess. But what's really interesting about, about the alkaloid po- uh, poisons is we're doing a lot of research on them. And some of them are obviously very poisonous in, in how they interact with us. But then they're using them for, for human medicine. Sure. Uh, they're a similar family to uh, what's found in morphine. You know, like some of the... The things they're looking at is with muscle diseases, some of these toxins might be really helpful there. Or nicotine, you know, people that, you know, are really addicted to to nicotine, tobacco, that they can use some of these to block those receptors so they can get over their addiction. Right. But it is a slippery slope. I was reading about one of the toxins they isolated and it was super hopeful. And I think it actually got past phase two um, FDA trials. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the therapeutic dose was too close to the lethal dose. Oh, geez. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want to be on that. So trial. I mean, it was working wonders as far as up as far as pain, mm. um, pain re- reduction, and I think anti-inflammation. Right. But yeah, it was just it was too close for comfort. Right. So yeah, I did. here you go. Let's try this trial. But and I think half it your patients all, die. But this all points to the fact of what you mentioned before. There's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. These are, we're talking about a few of the toxic compounds that they've isolated from a few of these frogs, Mm -hmm. and there's hundreds of them out there. And so the potential for therapeutic or medicinal purposes um, that could actually benefit humans, I think, is another vote in favor of trying to save these guys. Right, right. It is. It's the the rainforests, the... You know, the cures, the things that are possibly in there, as well as some of the deadly you know, stuff that comes out like Ebola out of Africa. But, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, the species, we can learn so much. And then we can use them to, to our benefit to an, to an extent where they're preserved in nature, but also ones in captivity. You know, maybe we can isolate some of these toxins and learn about them and how they work. Yeah, here's a species that actually does produce potentially medicinal benefit to us humans, right. unlike the rhinos, there's none. Yeah, there's the none rhino horn that people are after is just goofy because right. there's no medicinal value in that. Right. So, yeah. a, a little bit different today. And and again, I, I would say don't eat a poison dart frog or lick. Yeah, or lick. Take home message, <laughs> yes. kids and adults. Yes, do not. Yeah, do not throw them in your mouth thinking you're going to heal something. It's actually you know they they isolate these compounds again. Analytical chemistry, Angie's favorite uh, topic. It is exciting, right? But let's talk about you know some of the really the history of these guys with you know how they've been used. Oh well, the history with humans, of course, dates way back. Um, they've historically they've been a cultural symbol for many centuries, and different cultures idealize them or um, use them in myths differently. Egypt frogs actually symbolize fertility. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, they symbolize luck. Uh, For Native American cultures here locally, they're often related to the rain gods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for instance, currently, 
my son, I know your boys, uh, they love modern-day Kermit the Frog. Right. So there's right. still, even in pop culture, there's still our, this fascination with these uh, beautiful and unique creatures. But looking even back a little more historically, one of the reasons they got their names, dart frogs, they're also called poison arrow frogs mm-hmm. sometimes. But the reason they got this name dart frog is because the indigenous people in the Amazon basin, who are way wiser than us with a lot of these medicinal values of different animals is in plants, but they would dip, they would make their spears to hunt with and they would dip their spear tip into the, uh, into some of the secretions that they were able to isolate from the frogs and those become blow darts. And which once again, very toxic if they're hunting some kind of indigenous animal. And that's where the nickname the poison dart frog. Uh, dart came frog. From, right? Even though we know not all of them are, are poisonous, they kind of got this catch-all name. And then also more recently, they have, like you mentioned, they have been used for potential medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. And that's just starting. We're just at the very early stages of that. So that's really exciting with our uh, and potentially what the, the benefits that they could offer us. Right. And like going back to them using them as darts right mm-hmm. the poison and, and reading up some of that and actually seeing i remember you know seeing some of the videos that they've shown them use how they use these frogs they know which ones are the most toxic they don't touch them they don't mess with them no. they actually hold them in like a special container and then you know like you said earlier get them a little bit stressed they secrete the toxin they dip their darts in there and then they use them as blow darts to to get primates you know monkeys and stuff in the jungles for food, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, this poison is so toxic that it just, it kills the monkeys or knocks them out. Sure. And from what researchers can tell, of course, just of what we know minimally is that the poison can stay, these darts are good for up to two years. Right. Which so, is incredible. Yeah. Ugh. And then lastly, our relationship with frogs has, I'm sure everybody knows somebody who's had a pet frog, mm-hmm. whether it's something they caught or rescued in the wild or to some more, uh, to some of the hobbyist, uh, the herpers out there of the world that um, enjoy having uh, amphibians or reptiles as pets. And so that has also become popular in the commercial pet trade. Right. You said it hurt the herpers, so herpetology. Yes, I'm, yeah. I'm using Zooling. Yes. I'm using Zoolingo. So the people are like, what's a herper? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it doesn't sound, it, it is a flattering name if right. you know, if you're in the, if you're in the industry. industry right. mm-hmm. So herpetology study, that's amphibians, right? Yeah. So, yeah. uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, in the zoo, a lot of times people will specialize in working with an, uh, reptiles and amphibians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that should be brought up too, that I, for one, my take home message to any listener out there is you do not want a reptile or a, an amphibian for a pet right. in general, because they are some of the hardest pets to keep. Right. right. And we all, and a lot of kids ask their parents for a dog and mom and dad say, no, because I'm going to have to walk it. Well, walking dog is pretty easy uh, to take care of compared to taking care of a reptile or an amphibian, because although they maybe don't eat a lot and you don't have to take them for walks, they are very sensitive, which we touched on earlier so they need special lighting, special heat sources, right. special moisture, humidity control, specialty foods that you just can't go, uh, you know. I guess now you could probably get a lot of their food at PetSmart. But it's it's a, not only is it not an easy task to undertake, it can be very expensive. To it do, is, it to is do expensive. It, to do it right. right. 
And so, and I know a lot of rescue, like I've worked with some people that do rescues and mm -hmm. a lot of people, they, they take on these pets and then they can't handle it. It's like, oh, this is too much. Yeah. And I, I've been blessed working at the zoos. I worked with just very diverse tax across the board. And I have to say the biggest learning curve I had was when I, uh, even bigger than working with birds, because right. birds are also very tough to take care mm -hmm. of. But yeah, my biggest learning curve was definitely in the, in the herp. Uh, in the herp house, so mm -hmm. I'm using the lingo again, but working with the the um, amphibians and reptiles. Yeah. So it's not for the faint-hearted. My take-home message: I have lots of them today, but uh, my biggest one is if if you do have interest or you think you have interest in bringing home uh, an amphibian or a reptile, think twice, do your research, and then also uh, make sure that a species of frog reptile that you do get is not one of the endangered right. ones or uh, wild caught. Or wild right. caught, exactly. Yeah, nobody would want a wild caught poison dart frog because no. that would no. be bad news. Bad no. news bears. No, and it, and I think they are awesome if you're prepared to take care of them. And there's a lot of people out there that are that do have reptiles and amphibians as pets, and they're awesome owners. They know what they're doing. I talked to a bunch of students that that have taken care of them. The, the like I said, the ones that do rescues. So there are people out there that that know what they're doing, and you can become one of those. But again, like you said, do your research, know what you're getting yourself into. Sure. In a, in a captive setting, of course, the professional zookeepers and are a really good source, too, to learn more about how to take care of them, or they can give you some of the trials and tribulations right. on, on what you should do and how you should do it. All right. So back to more some of the, the geeky science part, and that's the amphibian Yay. life cycle. Like it is, I love biology and obviously I've dedicated my life to learning about animal physiology. I think amphibians really demonstrate why biology is, is, is amazing. It's an amazing field. And that's basically you take this egg, and I know we know a lot about reproductive biology in mammals and how this happens in, in the uterus and blah, 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 blah. Frogs, you know, lay these eggs. Then these eggs hatch. They become little fish, right? Yep. They look like fish. Swimming in some water. Right, the tadpoles. They're breathing through gills. And then all of a sudden they get arms and legs popping out. And then their gills gravitate to lungs, and then they hop out of the water, and they're like, hey, I'm going to live on water now. And that is insane if you think about it. Like, we just, all this stuff's going on, going on around us, and we never really pay attention and go, how amazing is this? Yeah, and, and how is this happening? Right, that's my, yeah, because we're geeks, right? We're science mm -hmm. geeks. So we always are asking how. You know, how and why? Why does this happen? How does this happen? Like why? I mean, because I still have that same gene in my body to, to become turn. A frog. You do. Right. <laughs> to turn, to, to grow some extra legs or, right. or, or, yeah. So. Yeah, people don't know Angie has like four legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but I know but, what you mean. But that gene's turned off, right. thank gosh. Um, or, you know, not being used. Right. And, but man, what a what a unique life cycle. It is. It's really and it and it happens within like two months. Sure. That whole process transformation happens quickly. You know, and I and I know early on in like reproductive biology we all are kind of the same. You know, early on most of mammals we all kind of look the same until we kind of differentiate into humans and chimpanzees and horses and elephants and all that stuff. Frogs, this is all happening in water. Right. Right? So, you know, the tadpoles Things like that. And really the, the hormones, they've, they've learned some because like you said, how this happens. So thyroxin is a hormone. It's a thyroid hormone that, that helps some of this metamorphosis. And then the one I found was prolactin, which I thought was really cool because that's like the, the controls that slows it down. 
and we know that as animal physiologists, as far as, you know, mammary gland development. Yeah, you think of prolactin, and you think of milk. Yeah, yeah like dairy cows. Pretty much end of story, yeah. even though we're finding out and both animal models and human models that prolactin does a lot of other things. Yeah, not just yeah, not just what we initially thought with uh milk. So do you know the difference between a frog and a toad? Interesting you should ask. Um instinctually I was thinking about it and I couldn't really come up with maybe one or two things. I came up with um, the toads. I feel like I see those more on the ground mm-hmm. and they have bumps on them mm-hmm. or quote unquote warts, warts yeah. right? As a kid, don't touch them. You'll get warts. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't true. That's a myth. Yes. Other than that, I couldn't really come up with much. So I used uh, friendly Google yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to learn a little bit more, which is, you know, I, I like to consider myself an animal expert, but, uh, but yeah, learning, I learned a lot. Right. There's a lot of differences. Right. They're subtle. Right. They right. are subtle, but there are definitely some differences. Pretty similar. I mean, you know, they're not a huge difference, but I think some of the things that I've learned about frogs versus toads, frogs have moist skin, and which is important because they actually breathe through their skin. Not only do they have lungs, but we're talking about, you know, the changes in the metamorphosis from gills to lungs, but they also breathe through their, their skin, gas exchange, getting oxygen from the atmosphere, and then versus the toad skin that's more dry and bumpy. And I think there's some differences in their legs, too. Right. Frogs have longer, stronger legs. They can leap farther where toads kind of hop along the ground. That's why as a kid you can catch a toad. Right. And good, <laughs> good luck with a frog. I can tell you a funny story. Uh, my mother-in-law would laugh about this, and I didn't know that, that toads pee. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> so when I was in Texas, I picked up this toad. I'm like, oh, my God, look at this thing. And I picked it up, and it peed all over me. And I, here I am in my 30s, you know, PhD, <laughs> thinking I know all about animals, and I pick up this toad, and it peed all over me. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> my three-year-old son even knows that, Chris. Yes. So, uh, yeah. yeah. You, gotta, was, you must have grown up in the city and not catch a lot of toads. I grew up on the beach in California. Ah, yes. I, so yeah, not too many toads. Yeah, I was, yeah, not many toads out there, but my but mother-in-law yes, it, loves to, to rib me about that one. Interesting fact, um, some of my fellow wildlife endocrinologists of course, are fascinated by hormones and learning mm-hmm. about them in all different species. And it, one of the ways they can learn about the hormones in frogs and toads is through their urine. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a, one of the ways that they collect urine is by just by picking, picking, them, them, up. By picking them up. So, warning out there to the listeners, if you pick up a toad, it will pee on you. It's a defense mechanism, right? Sure. That they do that to, to flee predators mm-hmm. and you, get a, you bite them and you get this mouthful of pee, which is nasty. Well, and I also was reading that toads have um, a, more of a bitter taste in general to predators than a common frog. Oh, okay. I was like, I'm not, not the find po- that out. Yeah, not the poison frogs. <laughs> right, right. And, but just in general, that yeah, they, sometimes they're able to ward off predators better because they just... just taste in, bad. Right, they're not poisonous. They just don't taste they, good. They taste nasty. Yeah. And then they pee in your... Pee and, in your, and then they pee on <laughs> you. Maybe right? that's what's tasting bad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Some of the things... So the life cycle, again, it's just so amazing. And, and if we go more into the, the poison dart frogs... You know, a lot of the females are going to lay eggs on leaves. The the males, and I know we're going to get into some more of the behavior. You're going to talk about this. The males become caretakers for most of them. I think females are caretakers in some species of them. And then they they kind of talk about how the parents will hatch when these these tadpoles hatch. They'll actually jump on the back of the parent, and the parent takes them up the trees, drops them into to water holes, and that's really cool behavior. Yeah, it's called backpacking. Right. And it's 
not completely uncommon in the in the amphibian world, but it is pretty unique. And to the fact that the parents are such good caretakers, mm-hmm. uh, both male and females, but typically the backpacking happens with the male. So in general, and even in the mammal world, there's usually, I always jokingly say, there's mostly deadbeat dads. Right, right. That they're, you know, they don't all, a lot of them, and I'm generalizing, but a lot of times the, the, the fatherly uh, male figure doesn't have much a lot of a, invested uh, in them, mm-hmm. right? And here we see in these little, you know, these little frogs, mm-hmm. the the male has a lot invested in is, is helping Brand mm-hmm. basically bringing the eggs from the leaf litter mm-hmm. up to a water source. And typically in the Amazon, because they get we think of rainforest, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they get a lot of rain. And so from the ground, they'll take them up to the trees and they'll find like a flowering plant right. that has pooled water in it. And then they'll dump the eggs in there. And which is, you know instinctually is just super smart and and that you know i'm I'm reading this and i'm thinking you know a lot of people just look at animals and they think they're so stupid they just think oh it's all instinct it's no emotion and it's not sure well and chris that actually kind of um, transitions really nicely into the behavior part of reading about poison dart frogs and learning they're actually considered very intelligent Mm -hmm. for um for an amphibian amphibian, type species and and I think that we only know a little bit of the cusp of their intelligence. Mm-hmm. But in a captive sub- setting, uh, they ha- can recognize their animal keeper right. with, within a week. And they've done studies to mm-hmm. prove this. Mm-hmm. That they're, I mean, they, we all know how much we love when our dog comes home mm-hmm. and recognizes us mm-hmm. and loves us. Or from personal experience, my horse definitely mm-hmm. nickers when she sees me. And then my cat, I know, knows who I am, and then <laughs> chooses to turn around. Right, that's <laughs> typical cat behavior. Damn cats. Unless they're hungry. Mm-hmm. So, but we're here. We're talking about an amphibian mm-hmm. that people don't often think much of, mm-hmm. and they're recognize they're 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 identifying with their caretaker. And, and just to jump in real quick, there was a a study or it was a, a seminar I sat in on fish behavior. Fish learning. Mm-hmm. I remember this. That just made me think of this this study, where fish can actually learn how to navigate an obstacle course to get to food. Oh yeah. So they know what wind. You know, like they were swimming down and up and around. And I was amazed that fish learn. They can target train fish with lasers. And I and once again, we're just at the cusp. And I'm of course a huge behavioral dork, and I think intelligence is so often just thought of primate mm-hmm, species. Mm-hmm. But we're learning more and more. And they think with uh, these these poison dart frogs, a lot, um, a lot of they have a lot of brain power, and they think they have really good eyesight. Mm-hmm. And in order to they hunt with their tongue, right? And you think of typical frogs using their tongue to catch their insect prey, but they hardly ever miss a strike. And so there's got to be a lot going, a lot of a lot going on up there in their brain right, to be able to coordinate, mm-hmm, yeah. to be able to coordinate all that. And then also very interesting, which might be a side of intelligence, is gold. Um, a lot of dart frogs, especially the golden dart frog, which is one one of the most po- yeah, the most poisonous, the most poisonous right. one, which we'll touch on a little bit. The golden darts, along with some of the other dart uh, frogs, are really social. Mm-hmm. And are more social than a lot of the other amphibians. In a captive setting, they can live in groups of up to ten sometimes. Mm-hmm. And in the wild, they've been seen mingling together in groups of like four to seven. And they're really rarely aggressive unless it's breeding season or they're fighting over territory. But in general, they're not aggressive with each other, mm-hmm. which is also very unique for an amphibian species. Right. And 
of course, they're immune to their own poison. So uh, with the golden dart frogs, they've been seen during breeding season and whatnot. Even though the females lay eggs and the males come over and fertilize them, kind of similar to the fish, external fertilization, the the males will still kind of stroke and not really groom, but uh, almost like pet and or even mount the female. Yeah. So just just different behaviors that you wouldn't that you think wouldn't th- you wouldn't think you would see with you know with amphibians. Little, with amphibians. I know it's crazy. This just makes you think like in memory, you know, memory recall and and things like that. So the you know, hundred years ago, probably thinking, oh, all animals are stupid and it's just all instinct. To today, and understand deep understanding of you know they have very complex social interactions with each other with their their own species their offspring uh, right and then caretaking all the way down to to simple things sure. like you know mating and, and eating and things like well, that and something along those lines is their communication yeah. so i mean we're able to communicate and and talk to each other and use our facial expressions and a lot of wildlife does very similar things. And so, of course, like we talked about earlier with the chorus of frogs singing in the mm-hmm. nighttime or whatever, uh, dart frogs are no different. They use their calls, but they actually incorporate gestures. Mm-hmm. So I know this from working in the zoo mm-hmm. with uh, frogs and toads. But um, a lot of times one of their signs of dominance, which I think is hilarious, is a push-up movement. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I feel like the next time I want to be dominant over somebody, I should just, <laughs> just start doing push-ups. Drop and <laughs> drop and give you know, drop 20. and give me ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wish I could give you twenty. Yeah. I, I'd give you about twelve uh, right now. Uh, but, uh, so, yeah. yeah, drop and give me twenty. I remember that. And then similar to some of the, even some of the mammal species or dogs or, um, or horses, but you know, a lowered head kind of basically mm-hmm. means a little bit more submission. Submissive, like, yeah. hey, you you know, you can you can have this territory, um, and their reproduction. You touched on a lot of it in their life cycle, but they are polygonous, mm-hmm. and they'll come into these really big breeding groups once or twice a year to breed. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're you know the females get to select the the most beautiful male, and so right. that's that could be some of the evolution of their color too, mm-hmm. right? The best and the brightest tend to do better, right? Looking the healthiest. Mm-hmm. So they have a really beautiful courtship call, especially from the males, and it consists of like um, high pitched squeaks that mm-hmm. are pretty rapid. And if you'll bear with me, I think I have an example here. We'll try to play it. This is a dart frog mating call. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, no, that's cool. It's, pretty, yeah. it's very distinct. It's like a high-pitched trill. Um, and I, uh, I want know, my husband to do that the next time he sees me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. After two kids, you're like, ah, oh, that's enough of that. Um, no, it's interesting because I... In in the first episode, I talk about there was a a few years ago a scientist came up. I think it was from University of Central Florida, and he was talking about the the course and the different frequencies of of frog song. And I brought it up because I was thinking of all the invasive species we have here in Florida. And he was talking about how they can identify different frequencies to find each other to mate. And so there you know there's high, low, whatever, and probably some frequencies that we can barely hear with human hearing. And I was like. Okay, we're bringing, we're mixing all these invasive species. Are they screwing up the frequency calls? Because you can hear something that's not quite the same, but maybe it is. And you go over there, hop, you know, spend all this energy, and and for them, you know, they're trying to conserve as much as possible because they're in the wild and they they need to survive. 
but they spend all this energy go over there and they're like, oh my God. And, and, and it's a boy, you know, two boy frogs that are totally two different species. And maybe one eats the other, who knows? But that's just the problem. I guess it just kind of highlights the problem of invasive species when we're mixing these these animals together that that aren't didn't evolve near each other. Right. We didn't let evolution do its due Thing. diligence, right. Right. and it could definitely be a problem. But I think too, pointing to either their intelligence or their social nature, we touched on a little bit that these poison dart frogs are super dedicated parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they almost make me look a little bad. I know. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. But. In general, they're uh, they're going to have a um, a clutch of about anywhere from seven to ten, and in captivity, we know more about their life cycle because right. we're able to study it. But it's about uh, thirteen to sixteen days for hatching in mm-hmm. a captive setting, and once again, we spoke about this backpacking ha- behavior. Mm-hmm. Once the tadpoles emerge from their eggs and they stick onto the mucus of their dad, mm-hmm. which just put this is a great visual for me. Yeah, baby wearing. <laughs> yeah, totally. This is like modern baby wearing yeah, for yeah. sure. You don't even need one of those expensive carriers. <laughs> uh, but they, anyways, the dad, the dad, they, they backpack, sticky stick on the back up to the canopy. The males then will still be involved with the care. But interestingly enough, too, is that the tadpoles will feed on like algae and different things and mosquito larvae mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. little nursery. But they've also shown that females will lay unfertilized right. eggs right. Uh, to also offer additional nutrients. Yeah, which is incredible. Right. And it's, you know, understanding biology and understanding nature and how much it takes for her to produce eggs. Correct. You know, it's... It's a big expenditure. Right. She has to, you know, all those nutrients that that she gets from eating, and then she's making eggs, and then she's going around and placing all these eggs for her babies. You know, that's an incredible dedication. But it gets even crazier. Yeah. This, I mean, I mean, the dads are doing a lot, but moms always do more. Right. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> seahorses? I don't know. Maybe we'll do an episode on seahorses. Aren't the dads like that? Yeah, we should. Yeah. But in general, right, us right, moms. Right. Uh, but these moms go super out of their mm-hmm, way. In mm-hmm. fact, um, research has shown that um, not only will they lay these unfertilized eggs, but they'll also lace them with trace amounts of the elkoid right. uh, uh, to feed the tadpoles, which goes to show that this behavior – being introduced to a poison at a very young age perhaps can build their own internal tolerance. Tolerance to it. Which researchers still don't know a lot and are just at the cusp of trying to understand how right. this poison doesn't poison them. And I was, re- yeah, I was reading a study, too, that talked about how that also gives them a little bit of toxicity. So yeah. predators, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then just lastly, um, they reach sexual maturity uh, it's between um, six and fifteen months in okay. captivity, so it takes a while. I mean, right. they're not breeding, rebreeding right as quickly right as you might think, or with some uh, some of the other amphibians. And in the wild, they live about how long? In the wild, it's hard, Chris. Right. Really um, I mean, following they're small. Yeah, these, I mean, these guys, are, some of these guys are the size of a paperclip. Right. But following them around, their suggestions to about three years mm-hmm. due to predation, habitat loss, yada, yada. Uh, but in captivity, they've been shown to live up to 15 years. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's a long-term investment for somebody that's, you know, have has a frog as a pet. Again, going sure, back to that. Sure, yeah. People, you know, people forget about that. Some of the things that, you know, I was looking into, like, and I had a question, what gives them their toxicity? We knew, you know, and I, I kind of already, already knew this, but it's what they eat, right? You are what you eat. Mm-hmm. So their nutrition... And really, they're carnivorous. 
you know, but they're they're not eating you know cows or stuff like we would or carnivores or a zebra. They're eating and, insect meat, right? They're insects and worms, which we might be them. eating too they pretty might, soon. <laughs> there are good. and there are people that sure. do eat insects. They're sure, supposedly food. good for you, but no, thank you. Good source of protein. Yeah, no, ugh. But we do know that they they do produce their toxins from their diets, Correct. right? Yeah. So that is something we definitely know. We just don't know exactly the mechanisms, how they absorb that in their stomachs, sure. and then get. And convert that to these alkaloid toxins. And they don't know exactly which species. Is it the ants? Is it the beetles? Right. I believe they're leaning more towards these beetles. These beetles that they're getting it from, right? So we, we did say that the golden poison frog is the most deadly. Its name is, bear with me, Phylobate terribilis. You did an amazing yeah, job I did. on that. I think I pronounce clap, something. Clap, clap, clap. Phylobate terribilis. That's a cool name. Well, the terribilis yeah. comes from terrible. Right, so it's awful. It's, right. it's 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 it will kill. What we say up to twenty, ten to twenty, ten to twenty men, human, yeah. Humans. And then I think, just being a math geek, yeah. that the basically per dose kill rate for mice that they've shown is um, enough to kill an elephant. Oh yeah, it's like, you might want to cut that part out. But anyways, there's some there's some really cool statistic out there that like they can either you know kill ten men or like two elephants, elephants. two <sighs> elephants. Yeah, that's crazy. So this golden poison frog is located in Colombia, and it has this batrotoxin that really how how it works is it prevents nerves from working or firing. Yeah, par- paralyzes. Right, you paralyzes your lungs. You can't breathe, or your heart fails. Cardiac arrest. Yeah, and then that's what kills no you. No fun. So, yeah, no, no. So the different types of things they eat are this formicin ants, the millipedes, the melarid beetles. Maybe those are the ones mm-hmm. that they're thinking that has the toxins in it. Some mites and then other unknown things. So they're they're down the leaf litter majority of the time hunting, you know, trying to eat things, and then they may go up in the trees to. Again, we know during that during the reproduction part, conservation wise, again, really, you know, back against the wall with this species, habitat loss. Uh, we've talked about climate change. We've talked about invasive species. Mm-hmm. We've talked about overexploitation. You know, we've talked about. The pet trade's having a big, big problem on a lot of frog species across the planet, and even poison dart frogs because they're beautiful. I would never buy one. No, I love them. They're gorgeous. I would have an aquarium in my house with poison dart frogs. I would be happy, tickled pink, but never. I would never do it. No, no. Go check them out at your local accredited zoo. Zoo that that has breeding populations. One of the things that I thought was interesting too was UV radiation with, you know, the Earth getting warmer. UV radiation is sure. getting really, really bad for them. Right. I think with this, um, the whole climate change uh, thought is that the, with it getting warmer, they have UV radiation, but then also their eggs need to be in moisture. Right. And so with this increase in temperature, I don't know about our listeners out there, but here in Florida, we had a very hot summer mm-hmm. and um, continue to have a very hot fall right mm-hmm. now. So the warmer things get... And the drier it gets, that is not good. They're, the eggs can't survive right. that. So there's that. Um, but then also, too, Chris, uh, pollution is really big because we've talked a little bit about their skin and how, like you said, they, their skin breathes and their skin can absorb a lot and they need moisture on their skin. So if the water's polluted mm-hmm. or whatnot, they're probably going to that they're gonna pick that up probably quicker than we would as far as different pollutants in the different right. water I've sources. Right, I've actually seen, yeah, I've seen videos of, of South America, like gold mining's a big thing, too. And people just dumping mercury. Sure, the, like yeah, the a lot of regulation in some yeah. of the other 
countries um, are different than the regulations right. we have here in the states, and they may not be as strict, right. and the waters may may or may not be as dirty depending on where they're at, and so these are things that you know, run downstream. And then, oh, I know, I sent I sent you that text uh, the other week of that. It was I think it was Ecuador, and I'll post it um, and we'll tweet it out. But it was that that picture of it was kind of flooding, but it showed just that trash just flowing. It's a it's a it's a trash river. Yeah. And that's going straight out into the ocean. Again, this is what con- the, you know. That Great Pacific Garbage Patch is what c- contributes. It's not just. I in, in the first episode I talked about Asia being a major pollutant, which I know we've documented. South America is another big one, and then you know, for for some people coming out and talking about the dangers of plastic. But it, yeah, right. I mean, you look at that. What animal yeah. can live in that? Right, and we're no angels with plastic. I no, blow through plastic not. at my house like it's nothing, like yeah, it's water, I'm, and I'm really trying to be more conscious about right. it. And buying things in boxes or obviously definitely recycling, but even trying to make better choices of how to not purchase plastic in the first choice, I know. in the first it's, place. It, and that's the thing, like putting this podcast together and I'm, I'm like, okay, we're going we're to put conservation tips out each week. And I've really got to live what I say. It's Absolutely. not, you know, do as, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I'm going to do as I say. Exactly. I, I have consciously, you know, turned off power, turned off water. When I'm washing dishes, now when I go to the stores, I'm trying to avoid buying plastic bottles because that's a big one. You know, everything's in plastic, you know, Gatorades and water bottles and things like that. And try to use, you know, um, neoprene or some of these other water bottles that last forever and that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when there wasn't much plastic around. People used it to drink out of glass and other things or... You know, now in this day and age, we have tons of um, reusable water bottles to mm-hmm. fill, and, and there's definitely ways we can try to make a, a little bit of an impact for right, sure. And, right. and anything, you know, anything we can do to help these guys, because uh, frogs and reptiles in general are very sensitive, and they're. And once again, if we think of the food chain, mm-hmm. if these reptiles or amphibians, let's not use poison dart frogs because mm-hmm. nobody wants to eat them because they're poisonous. Right. But just a normal little frog, I mean, that's small. That's lower on the food chain. And so if it's absorbed all these pollutants mm-hmm. from its local environment and then it's eaten by a bird and then that bird is eaten by a fox and then that right. fox is eaten by whatever, you can just see how it, that... Because all those chemicals just move up. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, you know, the chemicals that are being leached in the oceans and we're eating fish. I had salmon last night. I made salmon for dinner and, again, thinking... Wow, what's in that what's meat? What's in here, right. right? It's not only, you know, are we worried about, a lot of people worry about hormones in their meats and stuff like that. What about our fish, you know? Yeah. And and we don't consume as much fish in the United States compared to a lot of cultures around the world. Uh, some of the things, you know, when you look at the amphibian levels around Earth, you know, where they really thrive and live, and obviously mostly in the, in the tropics is where these frogs are. So if you look at the richness of diversity and then you look at extinction rates or you know what's going on with endangered species let's just use south america as an example of the the 2200 amphibian species they have they estimate close to 130 have gone extinct already 130 it's insane yeah 130 and 400 are are endangered or reaching extinction if you go to central america this one's really uh frightening out of the close to 1100 species of amphibians they've looked at they estimate 230 have gone extinct and five, 350 are endangered. So almost half. Like I said, wow. when you get to that 50% of amphibians are endangered or extinct, 
this is where this data is coming from. And you look at the trends across Earth, it, it, it's the same. I mean, even in North America, where we live, you know, 440 amphibians, 40 extinct, 100 endangered. Well, and I believe that um, a lot of the big groups like World Conservation Union um, or ICUN reported about one-third of all amphibian species are currently in decline. Right, right. One out of three. And he- heading to extinction, yeah, on a ra- at a rapid pace. And it's not slowing down. In our lifetime. Right. And it's not slowing down. There's, this is, this is alarming. Like I've, I've, I think that's kind of our, our theme is this is scary. Right. You know, this is real. This is happening and we need to do something about it. And, and you and I, this podcast is one way and there are thousands of other people, you know, hopefully we build it to hundreds of thousands to millions to billions to saving the planet. And sure. it's not so much, oh, you know, we need, to just do this one little thing. We need to come together to solve a lot of critical issues. Yeah. And, and not that we're trying to be all doomsday here, no, folks. No. Um, we're now just power. And so we know this, there's things we can do. There's things that have been done. Mm-hmm. And to give you a little bit of a feel good story. And of course my, my, my weekly zoo plug right, right. is the Puerto Rican crested toad. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about, the dart frog in this example, but we're talking about a Puerto Rican crested toad, was nearly driven to extinction by humans mm-hmm. on the island and back in 1982, so about 25 years ago or so. And what was ha- what happened was is certain zoos working with the AZA, accredited zoos, caught some up in the mm-hmm. wild and began um, a regulated breeding pro- program called an SSP. Mm-hmm. And they bred these guys and, of course, trying to always reduce interbreeding and whatnot and they were able to release them back into the puerto rican um, protected habitat there and they've been doing great since so in the puerto rican crested toad um the success story is just one of many that i'm going to touch on but we're also doing things with the the panama golden frog and the dusky gopher frog the houston toad a lot of those are in conservation enhancement efforts in captivity to move them back into the right. wild. One of the ones I looked up was the Mallorcan midwife toad. And that's one where the midwife is the dad taking care of the babies and so not a deadbeat dad again. Uh, plug for you. Yes. Yes. But there, yeah, there, there are a lot of people out there fighting for these animals and, you know, they're specializing in frogs and they're, they're bringing them to captivity, you know, through zoos, through research, sound science, Keeping these these populations intact and then re-releasing them into the wild, mm-hmm. and and even our even the government um, has taken notice about moving back to poison dart frogs. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about today, uh, CITES, which helps regulate trade of wildlife and right. international trade of wildlife and endangered species, they basically have declared the poison dart frog class two, mm-hmm. and what that means is that these species aren't. Since they're all not threatened, mm-hmm. some are threatened, some are highly extinct endangered, or extinct, extinct right. or endangered. Um, but trade is uh, is very much under control and regulated mm-hmm. to avoid uh, basically more, you know more unwanted extinction. So it's not the um, there's there's basically appendix one, two, and three, mm-hmm. and these guys are appendix two. So they're in the middle. But they, there has been note that we need to monitor these guys, whether it's in the pet trade mm-hmm. or um, or just you know. Yeah, and I think just because they're so, I guess one of the words we use a lot is charismatic animals. Yes, they're so beautiful, and they're they're just so cool. And like I said, I would love to have an aquarium of them, but I know that is not only illegal; 
it's wrong. Right. It's wrong. It's it's selfish and it's wrong that you know I'm taking these animals from either their habitats or or whatnot. So um, yeah, it's we're we're bringing the good news, but we're raising the alarm bells too. That I think people need to be aware of what's going on. And I think that kind of helps us lead into an organization to support, especially with amphibians. Oh, absolutely. There's some really good ones out there. And just from a frog point of view, not necessarily a dart frog specific, but a really cool organization. Um, I know I have friends that are birders that love Mm -hmm. to um, watch birds and also work on migratory birds and report those birds. There's a similar thing called Frog Watch USA. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can find it at www.aza.org slash frogwatch. This is a citizen science program mm-hmm. through um, AZA that you can log into, and it can provide individuals and groups and families with cool opportunities to learn about the wetlands in their mm-hmm. area, but then also to report on callings of local frogs and toads, and that helps the um, the researchers and the specialists keep somewhat of a population count and a breeding count of what's going on in their area. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. And I, you know, thinking about this, citizen science is where, as a scientist, and I've looked into this too for my own programs, we're trying to get you engaged in the research and actually participating in the research because it's so powerful for us to gather data. And, and we, it's fun. Like, it this is, is fun, something yeah. I, This is something I do with my, my boys, right. like I was saying. And it's a great way to get, you know, off off the computer and out into nature. Mm. And by nature, I mean walking down the sidewalk. Right. It's half lit yeah. at nighttime. So it's it's a way to really get, you know, your hands wet without having to go out and camp. Because right. I, I don't really camp. Right. I, I know you camp. <laughs> I do. I like the outdoors. <laughs> um, but another one, too, that is a little more dart frog specific is there's the Amphibian Survival Alliance. And that's an easy one to find on the internet. That's just www.amphibians.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they bring together a lot of world leaders in amphibian conservation and research and specialist groups. And they and they and it's very international. Mm-hmm. They work with over 100 partners around the mm-hmm. world. And one of their projects su- supports uh, poison dart frog conservation. And then even more specifically, if uh, you're a lover of these poison dart frogs and you want to Think about how to how your dollar could directly, mm-hmm. or, or learn more about them, could directly impact them. Is there's a group called Fundicion mm-hmm. Pro Aves. Right, right. That's my Spanish. It's right. out of Colombia, and it also works with this amphibian amphibian survival alliance. But this is a conservation uh, group that has set up uh, as trying to set up and establish more land for these frogs to live on because although they're small. They still need more land than you would think in mm-hmm. order to have their natural life cycle mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and maintain a healthy population. So this group can be found at www.proaves, so that's P-R-O-A-V-E-S dot org. Right. We'll put it in the show notes too. We'll yeah. Sure and, and so that, you know, there's a, like a two local um, guys there in Colombia that are just really dedicated. They're in the field. They're in the they're field in the fighting. Field and they're, they're doing they're it. The fight. And there's some really good interviews with them on, on how they are, you know, hands down helping out hundreds of these animals. And right. their work should really be applauded and supported. All right. Well, you know, it's just some things. Angie and I have launched a Patreon page. So if you're finding value in this program, please uh, go check that out. You know, we, we really need your support and help spread the word on the show. And, and I think it's something Angie and I are really dedicated to. And we are going to to be here each week with well, a new species. 
Yeah, and on the Patreon page, too, you'll also be able to find other other clips and right. interviews and some other fun side projects we have going on right. that will hopefully uh, enhance your listening experience. Right, right. And we just, you know, again, we just want to build a community and, and get the word out because that I think that's what really needs to be done here. To, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for spending an hour with us. Yes, it's been, I hope you learned a lot. I know I learned a lot. And uh, we would love any feedback. Right. Or share your story with us. If you've worked with any of these animals or know of other groups that I'm not aware of, maybe more local and within the community, within your community, we would love to share that because we want to be a networking uh, based group where we can learn and share from each other because there's a lot, there's probably a lot of things that are going on that are more positive that we don't know about mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, we definitely mm-hmm. you know yeah, of course please visit the the website you know our facebook account twitter tweet us you know uh, get a hold of us through social media but yeah we would love to keep developing this community thank you so much for your time yeah. thank you listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com